What we see is often, I think all of us, it's just human nature. We, we tend to focus on the solution rather than the problem. And we get really excited by the solution. And maybe actually the problem is deeper. Are you struggling to deploy cloud-native applications to a hybrid cloud? Do you want to become familiar with Kubernetes and Istio? IBM Cloud has a set of free, hands-on training, ebooks, and an always-on free tier of services to help you learn. Visit ibm.biz slash stackoverflow to learn more. That's ibm.biz slash stackoverflow. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Stack Overflow podcast. Hey, Ben. Hey, Paul. Back again. Well, we have a special guest with us today, Holly Cummins. Holly, would you like to say good morning? Morning. Where are you in the world today? I'm in the UK, just south of London. And it's Dr. Holly Cummins. What's your title over there? Java One Rock Star, no actual rock and roll involved. That's what it says <laughs> in your email signature. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, as, as you go through life, you sort of collect these little things. So my, my work title is that I'm the Worldwide Development Discipline Lead for the IBM Garage, which, as you can hear, rolls off the tongue. And I'm also an IBM Q Ambassador and a Java One Rockstar. Those are great oh, titles. titles. For, yeah. Ameri- for Americans, <laughs> that's garage. Like, it just, I, I can imagine half the, what's a garage? <laughs> Yeah, I, f- I, f- I find that even in the same sentence, I'll flip back and forth between the two. <laughs> mm-hmm. Of course, of course. So first of all, it's great to have someone here because I, from IBM, just we should talk a little bit about the fact that IBM is utterly changing in a vast and important way or sort of has, right? Like, so rather than me mangle what's happening, could you explain kind of what's happening to IBM? Yeah, so um, so it's sort of it's not my specialty subject, but what we're doing is we've got two different business arms. One really focused on infrastructure services, and one focused more on hybrid cloud and AI. And the the decision is that it makes more sense for these things to be managed as separate companies because the sort of the strategy wants to be different for those two things, and they have different capital requirements, and they just they they end up being feeling quite different. So now there's going to be essentially two or sort of two IBMs or how's it going to work? Yeah, the um, the new one, is we don't know what it's going to be called yet. So <laughs> so the new one sort of going through life is NewCo and at some point it will get um, a more formal name. Great example of shipping early. Like just go ahead, yeah. just <laughs> take your giant century yeah. plus year old megacorp, split it in two and be like, well, figure the name out. Don't you worry. So, and I mean, I know this is not your your department. It's just sort of here we are, and, and there's about to be. IBM is making a, a very big move around how it competes in the cloud space and uh, how it does services. And so, it's it's worth acknowledging that yet another giant transformation is upon us in our industry. So, Holly, tell us a little bit about how you came to the world of computer science and engineering, and, and what it is you do specialize in. So, yeah, so my background is actually not in computer science; it's in physics. Although that's actually true for, I think, quite a lot of people in computer science. Um, at one point, I, I, so the, the team I'm in, we're um, sort of a, a services organization, a consultancy organization. And at one point I looked around and half of us had a physics background. So it's the sort of the second degree choice, I think, for, for computer science. But um, I've, I've been with IBM for about 20 years and I've been kind of steadily 
moving my way up through the stack in my time at IBM. So I started out working on the performance of the JVM, so super low level. And that was really cool because I knew if I made like a half a percent performance improvement, there's so many servers that are running that JVM. It would just have this huge impact on the world. Uh, mm -hmm. So that was kind of cool. Um, and then I went up the stack a little bit and I started working in WebSphere. So I did a lot of work with WebSphere and OSGI. And then I went and started working well, more on... Wait, wait, oh, pause, yeah. because men, yeah. no, no, you're fine, but many of our audience members are going to be younger, and they won't yeah. know. <laughs> uh, we need to... T I mean, I know WebSphere is actually still out there in some ways, but like, what was, what is WebSphere? What is OSGI? Yeah, so those are, they're sort of, they don't necessarily need to be in, in the same sentence. So WebSphere is, I think, one of the real powerhouse application servers. It Traditionally, it didn't have an open source presence. And so that meant that when you looked at statistics for application server usage, it sort of wasn't very prominent. But then if you looked at actually the market for application servers, mm -hmm. it, it was quite prominent. And, you know, it, a lot of the big banks, a lot of those really power workloads were, were running on WebSphere and, and still are running on WebSphere. Because like a lot of the rest of us, WebSphere has been changing. It's been keeping up with the times. And that's where OSGI comes in. So OSGI is a modularity technology for Java. And sort of it never quite made it big, but it's had some really big impacts in some specialized places, particularly, again, in these sort of these, it's like, they coined the term microservices, actually, way before the distributed microservices that we all know. And it was solving a lot of the same problems of, I have 2 million classes on my class path. I don't really know which one's going to be used at any particular time. I definitely don't want them all visible on my class path. And... I know that those people are over there are using the wrong one and they're using the wrong version. So how do I try and sort this out and put some boundaries? So instead of using the network to put in the boundaries, it used, used a modularity system. And then it gave you that dynamism as well so that you could sort of invoke services and not necessarily have to pre-know and compile in those services, but just invoke it dynamically. So what WebSphere did was they said, let's take this modularity technology, let's apply it to ourselves internally. And then that means that we can have this super modular, super lightweight server that starts up in like three seconds because there's hardly anything to it. And then we can bring in those capabilities rather than having to do what the model had been before of sort of, we have to ship everything and load everything because what if someone needs it at some point? Is WebSphere specific to Java? It is. The sort of the end of the story is that what WebSphere needed to do was they needed to modernize, but then at the same time, they had a lot of clients who <laughs> really, you know, wanted to continue using it. Thank you very much. So we sort of figured out a way to replace the core while keeping the externals the same, and that became WebSphere Liberty. So it was sort of a, a variation, and now it's Open Liberty. So it's um, now it does have, you know, those really good usage metrics because it's one of the, uh, the open source application servers. But yeah, it's, it's Java. Typing it in to go look at it, WebSphere Liberty. I didn't know about WebSphere Liberty. This is one of the things where, where IBM is... I didn't know about WebSphere. Oh, you didn't know? WebSphere, to me, is like, that was always the very serious one. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, if you needed to build a large web platform for a large financial institution, WebSphere was always on that short list and sort of hand-in-hand -hand with IBM Consulting. So it, it totally... Uh, I, but here it is. It's out in the world. WebSphere Liberty. That's great. I think I always tried to avoid doing that. 
to avoid building large scale applications for financial environments. Um, <laughs> I am I'm writing my I'm writing my next blog platform on Web Three Liberty. Okay, so I derailed completely. Can you continue from there and and get us caught up to the present? Yeah. So so I spent a while helping to build Web Three Liberty. Uh, it was such a good thing that that we did there because. If, if you go and you read up on it more, you can see it has these amazing startup times. It has this amazing footprint. And there's kind of a a fun accident with with the history of Web3 Liberty because the market that they were originally thinking of when they wrote it was developers. They said, we need to have a development experience that's really delightful. And so it has to start up really fast and it has to be able to cope with running on a laptop because, you know, that's what a developer isn't going to have a huge um, data center accessible to them. At, well, at mm-hmm. the time we wrote it, that, that was the case. And then we realized that those exact same requirements that the developers need of it can come up and down really fast and it has a really small footprint are exactly the same as what you need in the cloud because there your footprint is money. So it ended up being a really natural transition for, for Liberty from working well to developers to working well in the cloud. But I also shifted from building products to helping people use products. So I moved into the garage, which and at the time it was called the Bluemix Garage. And we were really operating like a startup within IBM to work with other startups, help them take advantage of the cloud, get the most out of the cloud. So now tell us about a typical day. What are some of the things that you do? So I, all, all sorts. Usually I'll be talking to, to some customers who are, who are maybe looking and trying to figure out, can we help them solve their problems? And then the first question there is always, well, is the problem that you think you have the problem that you actually have? And so then that, that's part of it. Uh, well, actually, pause there. Let's play that out. Let me be a customer. Tell me a typical problem they come in with. I'll be the customer. What we see is often, I think all of us, it's just human nature. We, we tend to focus on the solution rather than the problem. And we get really excited by the solution. And maybe actually the problem is deeper. Holly, I need machine learning. Is it like that? I mean, how do they, what do they yeah, say? Yeah, yeah. Often it, it, it does, you know, tend to be quite fashion driven as well. Again, I think, you know, that's mm-hmm. just human nature. So it's sort of, Holly, I need machine machine learning or Holly, I I have data and I feel sure there must be something to do with the data, but I don't know what the right question is. Right. Or, I, I know I have a data lake, you know, it's, a, yeah. let's, let's do something. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Or, or a couple of years ago, it was, I need a chat bot. Well, what, what oh, do you want okay. the chatbot so to do? I stumble in. I say, Holly, I need I need an ML-powered chatbot. I read about it in CIO Monthly. Now what do I do? Tell me what I need to actually be thinking about. Yeah. So, now, so then what we'd usually do is we'd use some design thinking techniques to sort of try and drill down to say, well, who's your user and what problems are they actually having? Because the problems that they're having aren't necessarily the ones that have the most exciting technological solution, even though we work in technology. We always want it to be the uh, exciting solution. My favorite was we had a client and they wanted to do sort of a a manufacturing scenario and they wanted to do a chatbot for password reset because what, yeah, well, I I think, yeah, I think what happens is that there's sort of, we naturally want to make an incremental change. So the way that they reset their passwords at the moment was they rang someone up and they said, well, let's automate this. So instead of ringing someone up, what if they could just talk to a computer and that would cut the person out of the process? So it sort of feels like this really natural transition. <laughs> but when we sort of dug into it, we realized the reason they needed to reset their password all the time was because they were using these sort of handheld devices wearing really heavy gloves because it was this sort of factory floor scenario. <laughs> and 
So they were sort of fat oh finger, goodness, fingering entering great. the password. And actually, they didn't. That's amazing. They didn't really even need a password at all. So they could have just sort of like had like a QR code that was on the wall that they just, you know, photographed in order to authenticate into the devices. Or they could have just changed the system so that instead of giving you three attempts to get it wrong, it gave you 10 attempts to get it wrong. Or they could make an amazing little chatbot that pops up and says, hey, what, you want to know your yeah. password? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and the, 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 the punchline I, is that it was going to be quicker and cheaper for them to write a chatbot in the cloud than it was for them to make the one character change in their backend system to give them um, a more generous password expiry problem. Oof. Right, yeah, so, so then you, so, you sort of go around in a circle where the problem that you think you have isn't necessarily the right problem, nor is the second problem you have to like. You're digging deep into legacy stacks while you're doing this. <laughs> yeah. So, okay, so a lot of kind of cloud advisory. And I know one of the things I want to I want to just sort of jump forward to, because it's fascinating to me personally, is you do a lot of work around climate and sort of working in IT and, and how to factor climate into your strategy. So, you know, I, I think it's safe to say we have a maximalist, very real uh, a, a sense of, of climate change coming and coming to IT. And it'd be great to get your perspective. So, you know, you're, you're talking to lots of developers. What should they be thinking about? Yeah, I mean, we all, all of us, I think we sort of have this awareness of the problem and we, and we want to do something. And then it's such a huge problem that it's hard to even know where to, to begin. But the, for all of us, there, one thing that we can do, which is so easy, is we can start reducing waste. And there's, there's sort of a question of is reducing waste enough? Do we need to actually do a more fundamental transformation? But before we even get to that question, we should say, well, okay, well, but some of this waste is just, it's such low hanging fruit and we're just burning resources for no reason. So let's sort it out. And it because it's a double win, because as well as then reducing the energy usage and reducing the emissions, we're saving money. So like, what's not, not to like? So how do we reduce waste? What would you advise? There's two things. One is just often and I think the cloud makes this way worse, what, what ends up happening is we do an experiment and we put a server up on the cloud and then we forget to turn it off. And these things, they just sort of keep going and going and going. And there was um, a team, they did a survey and they looked at 16,000 servers, so a fairly decent sized survey, and a quarter of them were doing no useful work. So there's just these oh, zombie processes. Oh, all right. So there's a 25% savings right there. Yeah. So you can just chop that off. Yeah. I, I'm thinking about the servers right now that, I mean, I have running and I'll turn them off after this. <laughs> yeah. I mean, frankly, when, I mean, when you think about it, right, like at least 25% of servers should be just turned off on principle on the internet. I, yeah. I just think it would make All right. It, we're pausing the episode. We're all yeah. going to turn those off. Yeah. We're we'll going to turn back. those okay. off. Yeah. Just a big switch. Yeah. That's like, just shut down US East 1 for Amazon just and, and just see what happens. I think... For, it's gonna, chaos testing. <laughs> yeah. Well, and also yeah. just like give it a week and see what you really need. Everybody gets upset in the moment. You know, everyone's like mm. five nines, whatever. Just let's go for like one nine and just see what where we're going to, what's going to work, right? You know, just yeah. if, maybe, maybe I don't need my bank. I, I could, you know, probably <laughs> I don't. Who knows? I think, I mean, yeah, because we make these assumptions about what we need. And then when we start to challenge those assumptions, either accidentally through chaos testing or more deliberately, we realize we don't like there's a lot of things that we can do without. So I've, I'm hearing these amazing stories now of um, people that put in just a little bit of automation so that at 5 p.m. it shuts their servers down and at 9 a.m. it brings them back up. And as long as you've got the sort of the disposable infrastructure so that you can safely do that, then they can save like 
a third of their energy usage. That's fascinating. I have to tell you guys a quick story. So I've been watching Halt and Catch Fire to try and just uh, familiarize myself with a little bit of... So you uh, can understand me yeah, better? Yeah, yeah. Get my 80s <laughs> computer references tight. And one of the one of the plot lines is he goes to work in the data center because his stepfather is punishing him. And he goes in after he's clocked out at five and all the machines are quiet. And he's like, what's going on? And the guy's like, oh yeah, the machines run from nine to five, just like us. And then, then we turn them off, you know, nine to five. He's like, oh my God, we'll sell this network to, I've discovered this untapped resource. So before there was climate change, there was the idea of selling all that off time. Well, I mean, growing up, you wanted to leave the computer on because the off switch was the part that would break the most easily. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you would just leave that PC on because that was the least likely to melt down your PC. Yeah, it's funny because we all have like 30 Docker like instances doing things that you forget about mm. working with a group. Uh, that we had a Azure instance running and we would always make sure to turn it off because it charges by the hour. Um, you can charge by the hour. So you want to make sure you have the least amount of time. So maybe that's a solution. We can kind of, instead of letting everyone start up their own little server environment, we can uh, hold them accountable that what way. What is sadder though, than when you launch a little experiment using a container and then you go back to it like a couple weeks later to start it up and it takes like maybe 30 seconds, because you know nobody else is looking at it. You know you're like, oh, that didn't work no. at all. No, <laughs> that little website didn't get any traffic. Yeah, Google just put that, you know, whoever, whichever container service, just put that guy right to bed. And we, how does climate factor into your day-to-day? Is it something that, are clients ready to hear about it? Are they coming to you about it? Is it, where where does it live inside of your daily work? To be honest, it's still fairly fringe. I think there's, some clients are asking about it, but I think we still have it sort of compartmentalized in this box of like, that's something that we'll worry about in the future. That's something that someone else will worry about. And and we kind of need to be bringing, yeah. yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And we kind of need to be like bringing it in and looking at it when we make these technology, both in our behaviors, like, should I be shutting this off? Should I maybe invest in the automation? But then also just thinking about like the implications of our technology choices of, yeah, this is good in this way, but actually this is really bad in terms of climate. So maybe I should be trying to batch my workloads. Maybe I should be making some other choices. Maybe I should be trying to share resources so that we're all in the same cluster, that kind of thing. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit more about your work in Cloud Native and maybe talk to um, the folks listening? What do you, What is Cloud Native to IBM and, and how do you think about it? Cloud Native is one of those terms that we all want to be Cloud Native, but there's about 16 different definitions of Cloud Native, which makes it really hard for us to sort of figure out whether we've actually achieved it. So one definition is the classic of it was born on the cloud. And then we see a lot of times it just gets sort of treated as a synonym for Kubernetes. And so when we say we want to go to Cloud Native, what we really mean is we want to migrate to Kubernetes, which is a good thing, but not necessarily the same thing. Uh, there's still, you know, it's it's funny in the year 2020, there's still a lot of people making this migration. Do people come to you at IBM Garage because this is something they would like your help with? Or is this something you generally work with people that have already made the switch? Or what do you see the most? We're seeing a bit of a shift, actually. So we're doing a lot more migration because I think when we've both in my team in the IBM Garage, we sort of started out as an innovation consultancy. But then what we realized is that there's about this sort of 20% of workloads that are either new workloads or they're really trivial to move to the cloud. And then there's this 80% that are much more entrenched in the legacy. But in order to make progress with the 20%, you have to be making progress with the 80% as well. So if you want to innovate, 
you have to talk to a back end. Otherwise, it's not innovation. It's just a pretty website. And so then in order to actually allow more innovation, we also have to be sort of being brave and, you know, getting on our hip waders and going into that legacy to sort of say, okay, what can I do to this? To not, I don't have to rewrite it all, but I need to figure out the points of friction and fix those points of friction so that I can have my system as a whole moving forward. So one of the things that's fascinating to me, right, is that I sort of, we're talking about innovation and we're talking about cloud and it's sort of your, a lot of your background was lower level, but things that were going to feed into IDEs and feed into sort of SDKs and, and make it easier to compose services. And then I go and I look at the different cloud services and they're still relatively difficult to compose. And I'm wondering if where you see things going in, like, I keep wondering, like, when does the IDE for cloud show up or is it here and I've missed it? Like, how are people going to be working if they're building bottom-up from cloud services? That easiness, I think, is such a huge part of the the value of cloud is, and our industry for like the last 60 years, we've just been trying to make things easier and trying to make things easier. And then occasionally we've had these problems where we've gone in the opposite direction because we had a problem that was too big to solve and we had to sort of do it in two steps where we solved the problem and then we went back and we made it easy. And I think with cloud, we're sort of on a little bit of that sort of loop now as well, where when we first started with cloud, it was so wonderfully easy and you you know you just would start something up and it would work. But then we realized that we couldn't actually debug our thing in the cloud and we realized that we couldn't actually make progress with our monolith and then we sort of have gone back and now we do have I think it's fair to say quite a bit of complexity and then now we're sort of trying to eat that complexity again and sort of say okay well let's have more managed services you know IBM's got this managed Kubernetes and it really does go back to okay it's actually really easy to to just do this. It's hard to abstract things. I mean, it just truly is. Like, what are you abstracting? And it's just like, there's an easy fantasy that you'll just move boxes around on screen. But then it is interesting to see what's happening with orchestration in general. I'm just seeing a lot of developers get excited about things like uh, Pulumi or Terraform, stuff like that, where the ability to kind of write programs about the services seems to be quite motivating. But yeah, we're not at that point yet. There's no, you can't just drag and drop a cloud into existence. Isn't it kind of glitch? Glitch you can a little bit drag mm. and drop in cloud mm-hmm. in existence. You know, a great example too of the thing that was, that solved a problem but made things harder was Git. Git is incredibly complicated to get up to speed on. It's really hard. And then GitHub showed, showed up and kind of created the the centralized infrastructure around it and GitLab and, and other services, right? But it that original idea that like, oh, we're all going to have decentralized version repositories on our hard drives and we'll share them via email patches and, and sort of sync them up as we see fit. It turns out the humans couldn't handle that. We needed something relatively centralized in order to make sense of. So it feels like we're, we'll, we'll see that pattern play out in cloud services in some way or another. Do you want to talk about your work on Java, a little bit about where you see the Java community right now? We got to speak to some folks from Oracle not that long ago, and they talked a bit about the open source world of Java. So that would be cool as well. Yeah, Java has such a bright future. It's been declared dead so many times, and actually it just sort of seems to, <laughs> <laughs> to keep going from, from strength to strength. And what one of the things that I find really exciting is how it has adapted to the cloud and it has it has changed but when i worked in the jvm one of the the sort of the conversations that we have a lot was about ahead of time compilation because what java does is you send in your bytecode 
and then the server starts up and it starts compiling your bytecode. And you're watching your server start up saying, but look, in a scripting language, this is so fast. Why can't you do this ahead of time? And then the answer comes back if, you know, from people who sort of know what they're talking about in this area. They say, oh, no, 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 you don't want to do ahead of time compilation because actually if it watches your program for half an hour, if it watches your program for two days, it can optimize that way better than if it would just do it ahead of time. So by making that trade-off of that sort of slightly slower startup time, you get better throughput. But now again, on the that was when you would only restart your server every six months. Now on the cloud, these things are going up and down. And so that old assumption that ahead of time is a bad idea has been flipped again. And things like Quarkus do ahead of time compilation and they get, again, these sort of phenomenal footprint and, and phenomenal startup time because of doing ahead of time compilation. That's really neat. You must have a real different understanding working, I think, on the JVM and then working in Java. I think it kind of gives you, I think a lot of programmers, backend developers take these things for granted, what's happening under the metal. Um, and it must give you a really interesting perspective on the language itself. Yeah, it's nice to sort of know the the very sort of underneath and and the very top but it is also i think one of one of the sort of the beauties of our industry is that you don't have to and that although because we were talking earlier about how abstraction is hard and it totally is and we get these sort of failed abstractions that leak and then in order to do anything meaningful you have to go underneath but the jvm has actually been a really successful abstraction that you don't have to know what's underneath in almost all cases and you can just get something that works really pretty well um, just for people who don't know, what was the Quarkus that you mentioned? What is that? So Quarkus is supersonic subatomic Java. And so it's... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so cool. It, it is, sounds, it's, that, that, uh, that sounds it's, awesome. That's a, that was the, the, the nerdiest Beastie Boys song. That's very exciting. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so what it does is it sort of combines a, a few a few technologies. Um, so it takes GraalVM... And then on top of that, it has some some runtime constraints, particularly around dynamism and reflection and a couple of Java features that you don't really particularly need in 2020. And once they put all of these things together, you get this runtime that is just stupidly fast. So yeah, you should you should all um, go look at a demo of Quarkus because I'd heard about Quarkus and it didn't really make sense until I saw a demo. And then I was sort of, I blinked and the server was up and I was like, wait a minute, shouldn't, shouldn't the server have taken some time to come up? But no, it just, it's super dynamic. It comes up and then it has this ridiculously tiny footprint. I, I heard a story from someone who was doing booster duty with Quarkus and they were, I think they were not the most technical role, but they were, they were doing booth duty and, and they, bless them, they forgot to turn it off each time they do a demo. So they'd sort of show someone, look how amazing Quarkus is. And then the next person would come along, look how amazing. And each time they'd start it up. And at the end of the day, they had 200 instances on their little laptop. But the best thing about it is that it didn't matter. They had completely forgotten to shut down after every demo. And it just carried on and it didn't affect their laptop at all to have 200 servers running. That is a different era than, you know, Dash MX in 180 megs and if you did that times 200, <laughs> your computer would catch catch fire. And then it ties back to climate change as well. Again, it's one of those double wins where if you have, if you can put 200 on a laptop, then in a cloud instance, like you can have so many. Interesting. Okay, so so we're back to optimizing. We're back to uh, yeah. actually taking computer science seriously as an industry. <laughs> yeah. It's very exciting. Somehow we got back to physics too, right? Quarkus, I like this. 
It all comes full circle for you, Holly. All righty, everybody. It's that time of the episode. We always talk about this time. So today's Lifeboat awarded to snippets of code convert seconds into days, hours, minutes, and seconds. Convert seconds into seconds. Well, you know, you can have it however you like. Thanks to Snippets of Code for sharing some knowledge, getting us upvotes, saving this question, and receiving a badge. Uh, I'm Ben Popper, the director of content here at Stack Overflow, and you can always find me on Twitter at Ben Popper. I was just going to say, I love that in 2020, time is still one of the hardest problems in computer uh, science. It, it Speaking of no, abstractions. No, yeah, it is this, so this podcast hard. is us repeatedly talking about time zones for about a year. Time zones and uh, <laughs> they're just bad. Off by one errors. It's the same <laughs> stuff. We're still we're still struggling. Sarah, tell the people who you are. Yeah, I'm Sarah Chips. I'm the director of community here at Stack Overflow. Go to iwillvote.com to find out your nearest polling location. Then I'll stop doing that after the third. <laughs> Me too. I'm Paul Ford, friend of Stack Overflow. You can check out my company at postlight.com and vote, 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 vote. So I'm Holly Cummins. I work for IBM and you can find me on Twitter and various other places, but I would, I'd love to point people. I talked a lot about Quarkus. So I think you can go look that up at quarkus.io. And I talked a bit about IBM Cloud as well. So I'd encourage people to go have a look at that. 